welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. So this week, we have an interview that I did with Joseph Osmondson about his book, Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. So that's a pretty heady title, but what it's really about is kind of using queer theory and queer experience to walk through both the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic as it kind of refracts through the lens of the AIDS epidemic. So Joseph is himself a virologist, you know, somebody who studies viruses. And also he is somebody who works a lot in kind of queer media as as a poet and also as part of the Food for Thought podcast. So he has a lot of disparate kind of experiences and ideas that he brings to the kind of question of virology, immunology, and kind of how we manage ourselves in pandemics. But one of the things that I found really interesting during this conversation, and I'm wondering kind of what your experience of this was, Kate, is recalling those first days of the pandemic. Maybe this feels a little bit too triggering, but how scary it was and how little we knew versus what we know now. Like, do you remember washing your grocery bags? Oh, yeah. But, you know, I I think my experience of the first few days of the pandemic or weeks Mm. was maybe a bit counterintuitive because I really did think that it would change everything. So I had a lot of optimism in the in the first few weeks. I, I felt like it was going to be a real turning point that people were going to kind of realize the interconnection between everything. You know, in the beginning there were these reports like nature's healing. Yeah, pollution you know, is down. You can breathe well in Los Angeles. It yeah. was raining in LA at that time, which of course was a relief because the drought had been so That's bad. Right. So I mean, yes, I was afraid and I didn't want my son to touch anything, which is really hard when you when he was a toddler at the time, but I had hope. And I think that's so different at the same time during, you know, especially the first few months of COVID-19, I was thinking a lot about AIDS and Mm -hmm. because I was thinking, oh, that's the last, you know, pandemic that I had lived through, even though I wasn't as aware, but I think thinking about the response, all the differences, you know, the total insane hypocrisy, thinking about how we already got a vaccine for COVID. There was never a vaccine for AIDS. Having read, you know, something like, and the band played on and just the huge like global story of how AIDS emerged and what a stain it was, especially on the United States government. And maybe there were some similarities with COVID in the beginning, but but certainly the the two were very connected in my mind early on. So um, I'll be curious to hear this interview. And that's happening again. You know, one of the things that Joseph and I talk about in the interview is actually what's happening right now with monkeypox, right? So monkeypox is a disease that is transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. And it's primarily spreading right now, at least, among gay men. And there is virtually no and certainly no appropriate government response. You know, you hear these nightmares. I think it's very difficult to get the vaccine in Los Angeles and even in New York, where it's allegedly easier. Government sign-up sites are crashing. People can't get access. It's just a nightmare. So plus ça change, plus ça la même chose, I guess. But in any event, let's get to that interview. Great.
today I've got Joseph Osmondson on the line with me. Joe is a professor of microbiology at NYU, and I want to take a moment to serve Violet's pride with you as also oh, somebody who went to NYU. Nice, nice. Joe is also a critic, essayist, and co-host of the Food for Thought podcast. That's T-H-O-T. His work has appeared in a variety of publications, including leading bioscience journals, The Village Voice, The New York Review of Books, Feminist Wire, and The Los Angeles Review of Books. He joins us today from a temporary location in Los Angeles to discuss virology, his new collection of essays published in June by Norton. Part memoir, part COVID diary, part essayistic journey into questions of risk, identity, and modern culture, virology loosely explores what queer thought and experience can help us see and understand about viruses, as well as what a close look at viruses can help us understand about ourselves. Two major pandemics saturate the book, and that would be both the legacy of the HIV-AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s, which is obviously still ongoing, and the COVID-19 pandemic of the past several years. In looking at how queerness, risk, and social bonds intersect with moments of peak medical crisis, Joe searches out how we have been challenged and changed by pandemics and what new worlds we can build out of them. Welcome to the show, Joe. I'm glad to be speaking with you. Wow, that was such a nice introduction to the book. It's just been, publishing a book is an emotional hellscape in the best of times, and these have not been the best of times. So the moments where someone takes care and precision with what I try to do in the book, I appreciate a lot. Let's talk about the book. How did this collection start for you? So I've been writing about HIV since forever. One of my first major essay publications was in the LA Review. The science editor, Michelle, there pulled it out of the slush in like 2013. It was a long essay. It's called Capsid. You can find it online and published as a chapbook. It was a reframing of my own understanding of HIV. I had been in a relationship where I kind of knew the partner was cheating. I had many friends at that time see or convert from similar relationships. And I really wanted to understand my relationship to HIV in new ways and think about it not as only something that meant death and only something to be afraid of and ask how could I love myself regardless of you know, the fact or not of this virus in my body. Because when retroviruses infect you, they become you. You become them. They put their molecules into yours. And so I've been working on viruses forever as a metaphor. I did my PhD studying bacteriophage, which are a family of viruses that only infect bacteria, both as scientific objects and as cultural objects. Viruses have always fascinated me. And I just think growing up queer in the wake of the early HIV plague years is such a marker. I argue in the book strongly that we all live with viruses regardless of our individual status as infected or not. They change culture. HIV forever probably changed queer sex. And so they've been an obsession of mine and something that I've kept coming back to. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and we started doing a huge amount of COVID activism, Specifically, actually, funnily enough, around the first thing I was working on as a molecular biologist was access to testing. Testing is a really simple biomedical assay called a PCR test, which, you know, I've been thinking about since I was like 19 years old. And I'm super glad that everyone in the world knows what a PCR is now. And so we were working on this and I was unable to write initially. And my friend and mentor, Alex Chi, who I've been talking to a lot, he said, girl, 
someone needs to be writing about this and given your insight and given who you are, given your training, you should be one of those people. And so I took on writing the pandemic as it was happening, writing the activism we were doing, writing the sort of at-home activism, the way that I think about like potting up with your friends and trying to minimize risk and care for each other. That's sort of an activist way of imagining our social relationships and thinking about responsibility to one another and mutual care. And so the collection really came from that moment of feeling that writing about viruses was going to once again be life or death. And I think it was at that time. One of the parts threaded throughout the book that I found really moving in the sense that it moved me to remember that time Mm -hmm. are those reflections you had from the very beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So they're kind of COVID diaries. And I can very much remember Mm -hmm. March 16th, 2020 is when we were told that we have to work from home. And I think that was perhaps the first time that I truly understood that we were in the midst of a world-changing experience. Can you just talk a little bit about that kind of early experience of the pandemic and what you think we can take from that with us now? So we we sold the book in fall of 2020, right about when we learned the vaccines were going to come online that fall, early winter. And book publishing isn't just a business, but it is a business. And mm-hmm. one of the press's major things about the book is they didn't want it to be like just a book for the moment of crisis. They wanted it to be a book that even if COVID, you know, at that time we were like, COVID could go away. We remember when we still thought that, that we could, you know, there would be a quote unquote normal to go back to. So one of the things that I thought was super important in the book was learning from the HIV crisis that after a pandemic, the normal shifts. And this notion of going back to normal is just not possible and actually does people a huge amount of emotional harm, which Mm -hmm. you see in a lot of long-term HIV survivors who, you know, survived the transition of HIV for those with access to care being synonymous with a death sentence to being a treatable chronic illness. So many of that generation was lost over the next 10 years to suicide or drug addiction or stopping HIV treatment. The literature from that era tells you that when you live something traumatic and you refuse to look at it and assimilate it and accept it as painful as it is, it will do you immeasurable harm in the end. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was essential to write into, you know, there's a scene in the book that I wrote that day. All of those journal entries were written day of. They were very Mm -hmm. lightly edited. March, whatever, March 16th, New York City was still not shut down. I ran an errand. I went to the Trader Joe's wine shop where I could get my little box of rosé that was keeping me going. And I was biking down Mott Street in Chinatown, which is always bustling, and it was empty. So this must have been just after the shutdown. It was empty. My good friend, whose name I changed in the book, and I don't remember what I changed it to, was an ICU step-down nurse, but had been converted to a COVID ICU nurse Mm. because the hospital he worked at was so overwhelmed. And my mom was sending him homemade masks. They didn't have PPE for him. Yeah, I remember those. That was when masks were all being made basically by people at home. Exactly. So my mom in Washington was sewing him masks to be in a COVID ICU unit. He was asking me as a virologist, how many days can I wear my mask? Should I put it in the oven after work to sterilize it? 
And it was seven o'clock and seven o'clock hit and I heard the applause biking down the empty street and I just lost my shit, man. I just was like, my friend is in this experience. He's not protected. I worry about him every day. And the applause coming from apartments felt on one hand, both a beautiful gesture and on the other hand, wholly insufficient to the moment that we were facing. You know what? I remember I had a friend and I've never forgotten this reaction who was living there at the time. I was in LA, have been throughout the whole pandemic. But a friend who was in New York said his response to that gesture where people would come out basically just for listeners who may or may not remember this, would come out around 6 p.m. every day and people would just clap on their balconies, both in honor of the medical workers and other Mm frontline people that were doing the work in the midst of something all of us were terrified of, which is a nice gesture, but he said, to me, actually, when I hear that, it makes me so depressed yeah. because I realize we're all trapped in here and everybody wants to pretend that we're able to connect with other people, but we're yeah. not. We're just trapped. It was the only thing people could do and it was wholly insufficient to the moment and yet a beautiful act of solidarity and yet deeply depressing. You know, And that is moments of crisis and trauma are often so super saturated with feeling that you don't want to look at them. You don't want to remember that time. And one of the things that the book asks us to do is to look at that time and to feel it, but not, I'm Irish Catholic, so it's very easy for me to be like, flagellate yourself with your negative feelings. (laughs) Not, Not in that way. In an understanding that we have to understand and process that trauma in order to move on and be healthy with ourselves and others. I think that for you, obviously, but I also think that for many other gay men of our generation, so Joe and I are described by the not-so-great marketing descriptor of geriatric Geriatric millennials. Exactly, yes. Check me with the walker. But for men our age, and I think older, there is the specter of HIV-AIDS as we encountered it as younger people coming into a kind of understanding of our sexuality, I think a lot of people saw parallels, uneven, messy parallels between that sensorium world and what it felt like being in the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you frequently come back to in the book is this, and there's been much, much writing about this, how gay men have a unique association. One of the legacies of AIDS is an association that gay men have with sex and risk, Mm -hmm. right? So sex is always a risk calculation. And I'm not saying that it is not true for heterosexuals or any other way that you want to organize your sexual identity, but it was definitely, that was part of the pedagogy of sex when we were growing up. Sex was risk. Sex was always potential death as a young gay person. And In your book, I found very interesting the way in which you process the legacy of that experience. So one of your friends, the poet Tommy Pico, who we've had on the show before, when you're discussing Truvada and PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylactic to help prevent the transmission of HIV, is something that on the one hand offers gay people of today a kind of time portal back to the 1970s when you could have sex without condoms. But for your friend Tommy, Because of the experience of the 90s and the late 80s, that condomless sex will never feel safe, will never feel secure, and therefore is drained of that kind of funness. Possibility. Can you talk a little bit about how those experiences, the kind of 
HIV AIDS pandemic of the 80s and 90s informed a certain kind of response in your thinking about a response to COVID-19? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of the pandemic fatigue, and my God, pandemic fatigue is real. And it happened with HIV and no one wants to use a condom perfectly 100% of the time. It's an impossible task. But when all of these straight people were like, I'm tired of masking. It is too exhausting to have to remember that we're in a pandemic. And it was just like, girl, my whole life has been fashioned by risk-aware choices around pleasure. It's just like, Mm. you know, these people are like, oh, it's been a year. You know, I can't worry about risk every time I do something fun with my friends anymore. And it's like, well, that's just the reality. I think people are trying so hard. The reality has been so difficult in the last few years that people don't want to accept that it is what it is. I mean, we're in a COVID surge literally right now. June has been an Omicron 2.0 surge, it is definitely happening. And you know, as I fly, I bought a crazy special mask for my tour, for my flights. I'm like one of the only three people on any Isn't that wild? Wild. I find that true here when I've been traveling and also when I'm in the grocery store also. I will say it feels a little bit better in Los Angeles than it did elsewhere. You see Mm -hmm. higher Mm -hmm. incidents of people wearing masks, but mostly people just aren't. And then it's this collective moment where you're like, wait, am I being the crazy one? One of the arguments that I make in the book is that a virus is a virus. It is a physical object. It is a thing in the world that is too small to see with the microscope, but big enough to see with an electron microscope. It is fats and proteins and either RNA or DNA. It is a thing. But the meaning we make from a virus has both biomedical and cultural ramifications. And it would change over time. It is clearly true that the virus of HIV is largely the same virus as it was in 1983, but the meaning of HIV is very different now. Very, very different. Mm. And PrEP also changed the meaning of HIV. And for me, I'm not saying for everyone, but for me, having unprotected sex outside of a monogamous relationship without worrying about HIV was a deeply freeing act that Mm. undid a lot of the trauma of being socialized into a belief that sex, all sex, unprotected or not, could bring death. It also made me have healthier relationships because sometimes I was staying in monogamous relationships that were not good relationships because I was like, well, I'd rather do this than go date and probably get HIV from a broken condom from someone I don't know, right? It's just like, that's not actually healthy, you know what I mean? And we pathologize unprotected sex outside of a monogamous relationship so profoundly, even internally. And PrEP helped me undo some of that internalized stigma that had done me harm, that had caused me trauma, that had made me make poor relationship choices. So God bless biomedicine. It can be a beautiful Mm. thing. And then it's our job to make sure that everyone who wants it has access to it. In terms of the world being relentless and it being difficult to accept, we are June Pride Month 2022, mm-hmm. and here we have monkeypox yeah. spreading through skin-to-skin contact in the queer community. And it is just like, God fucking damn it. And so monkeypox changes the meaning of skin-to-skin contact by gay men at this time. There's just no other way to frame it in a risk-aware, sort of community-minded way. The vaccination that we hope to get access to soon will hopefully change the meaning of monkeypox, which will then change the meaning of skin-to-skin contact at a circuit party or a sex party, right? So it is just so 
complicated and so relentless and so difficult to sort of externalize in terms of what's happening in the world and acknowledging it, then internalize in terms of how we feel about it, how we feel about our community and our actions. And some of that language, some of that describing the things that viruses are outside, the things that biomedicine can do to change the meaning of the virus and the things that we can do to our bodies and with each other, to clarify a lot of that thinking, let it be as nuanced and complicated as I think it is but in a way that is accessible also. That was a huge goal of a lot of the writing in the book. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Joseph Osmondson, author of Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. happy to have Ruth Wilson Gilmore back on the line. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is the author of a number of books and her most recent is a collection of her essays over the last 30 years. It's called Abolition Geography and Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a book recommendation for us. What is it? I do. And can I cheat and and just rattle off a list of books and tell you why? Yes, you make the rules. (laughs) All right. I tried so hard to come up with one book recommendation and I couldn't do it. So I'm going to rattle these off and then tell you why all of them. Okay. Lale Khalili's newest book is called Sinews of War and Trade. Leslie Marmon Silko's classic, Almanac of the Dead. Tony K. Bambara, also classic, Those Bones Are Not My Child. Ron Ware's new Return of a Native. Julia Scott's been out a few years now, the late, great Julia Scott's The Common Wind. And then finally, an edited volume by a group of historians called Erica Ball, Tatiana Saihas, and Terry Snyder. And the title of the book is As If She Were Free. The last one, a collective biography of 24 African or African descended women in the Americas from the 16th to the 19th century. Now, what do these books have in common other than I like them all? These books taking a variety of different approaches give us an incredibly beautiful, really distinct styles, prose styles, novel styles, expository prose styles, ways of thinking about the world as it connects by layering one story next to another or looking at the land and thinking, how is it possible that this land use has changed over time? They give us these incredibly global views of the world. And I'm gonna sort of end my comments by talking briefly about Julia Scott's The Common Wind. The Common Wind was Julia Scott's dissertation that he wrote as a a history graduate student at Duke University in the mid-1980s, and it was never published. It was a legendary thing. It circulated. You know, people had copies of it, and they read it. And finally, maybe six or seven years ago, the historian Marcus Redeker and uh, Robin Kelly and a few other people got together and said, this book must be published. So Verso put it out at last. The Common Wind is a story about how the people around the Atlantic 
who were unfree or marginally free, found each other and developed relationships and ideas about liberation in the long period of modernity, starting in the 16th century. And it's a really beautiful book. So all of these books give us a way to think about internationalism from below, even if that is not the explicit topic or purpose of the books. So that's my list for you. Wow. Amazing. And when did you come to the books, all these books at different times? Have you been reading them recently? Is this kind of like a syllabus that's building? Like, where do these books play a role in your life? Great question. I read uh, Leslie Silko's book when it came out. I read Tony Cade Bambara's book when it came out. In fact, one of my first teaching jobs, I was an adjunct teacher in an English department and I taught Leslie Marwin Silko then. And so I read and read and read and read. And I've always been a pretty voracious reader and I wrote all kinds of things, but I particularly like reading fiction, although I did make myself into a political economist. So the reason that I thought to put these books together for our encounter now is that they give me some hope that thinking about internationalism from below, when so much of the world seems so deeply fractured that the only globalism imaginable is the globalism of racial capitalism, that these books just say, no, look from the bottom up. So even though Lale Kalili's book is about war and trade, she takes, as it were, the point of view or the perspective line, I should say, of the workers who build the ports and person the ships and so on and so forth that makes the constant reconfiguration of the Gulf states possible so we can think about them. Leslie Marmon Silko's book has always struck me because it was actually prophetic. And in that novel, she has what became in 1994, the Zapatista uprising already written out. It's in the book. She published the book before January 1st, 1994. It's really quite an amazing thing. So prophetic, thoughtful, Tony K. Bambara's book is about how in the context of so much difficulty and misery and terror, people bring themselves together and fight for what they need and want, even under the most dire circumstances. And this was the Atlanta child murders. And the edited volume by these historians, none of whom I've ever met, is really gorgeous because they have 24 different contributors who ask, answer the same kind of series of questions about their subjects, however thick or thin the archive was on their subjects' lives. So it reads as this incredibly exciting way to understand how people who might seem to be at the absolute margin of any capacity of power or self-determination make a life in the world. Amazing. Can you, I'm sorry to do this to you, but can you tell us the books and the authors again? Oh, I'm happy to do that. Lala Khalili, Sinews of War and Trade, Verso. Leslie Marmon Silko, 
Almanac of the Dead, Tony K. Bambara, These Bones Are Not My Child, Vron Ware, Return of a Native, Erica Ball, Tatiana Sejas, and Terry Snyder, As If She Were Free, Julius Scott, The Common Wind. Oh, thank you so much, Ruthie. I look forward to checking those all out. I appreciate the in-depth recommendation. You're so welcome. Thank you again. That was Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. Her latest book is Abolition Geography. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joseph Osmondson, author of Virology. I don't want us to get sucked into the experience of the queer experience of HIV AIDS as being purely negative, right? So we've talked about what the trauma is. But the other part that I always take great solace from are the stories that I read from folks like Edmund White, from, you know, all of those kind of that generation of queer writers that lived through it. There were incredible networks of care that I don't think would have existed perhaps in any other community. Um, They were adaptable. They were dynamic. You know, you had lovers caring for each other, but also friends of lovers, you know, other lovers, a community of lovers caring for each other. And so a lot of your book also focuses on the capacity for care, like the need for care. So can you talk a little bit about that, both as a legacy that we inherit from um, kind of our gay ancestors in the in the AIDS pandemic and which is useful for us now? My friend Marika Sifor, who has a book out this spring also, it's out now, it's called Viral Culture. She's an academic archivist. Uh, and she looked back at, at the archives of ACT UP mostly, but um, at also of other AIDS, or, AIDS and art organizations of around that time. And she, you know, I think there's this, there's this tension. There's one way you can look back on um, the 80s and 90s and the early HIV plague years as just a time of death and destruction, of suffering, of trauma. And But there's another thing that happens that can also sort of um, look back with nostalgia for things like ACT UP in a way that also flattens and dehumanizes. Mm. And so she coined this term vital nostalgia, which is the idea of looking back with with nostalgia at the era of of ACT UP and of mutual care, the type of thing you're talking about, but in a way that points out what specifically about that time we are so drawn to. Um, We live in America incredibly atomized, separate lives. And that was a time where where people were caring for each other in extensive networks outside of the nuclear family. They were building activism around radical change, change that included uh, changes that would make homelessness no longer exist, large-scale changes to healthcare infrastructure. They yep. were imagining a different world. So it was mutual care, world-building, sort of community. Uh, act Up fucked. They had a lot of sex in Act Up, right? So that that points to all the ways in which a lot of that mutual care, non-nuclear family building, uh, and activist vision for a better world that we're missing right now. And to say, well, that's vital nostalgia. That's what we look back to that era for. And how, not only that, not only to look back, but how, if we can recognize that so many of those things are missing now, how can we actually rebuild 
those things, an activist vision for a completely different world in the face of climate change, ongoing pandemic, uh, the rollback of, of queer rights, trans rights, women's rights, et cetera, et cetera. We need uh, that type of organizing spirit and mutual care now as badly as we did in, in the early HIV plague years. Yeah, and not least of which is because what a pandemic poses an opportunity, right? It might be we could see it as like a razor's edge on which you know, society can tip to one direction or the other. And I think that, you know, and I'm not alone, that seeing pandemics are unique opportunities for what I would maybe call authoritarian seizure, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Where governments and the powerful can kind of manipulate a public health crisis for a power grab. And it uses exactly the same logic, the word that you used before, atomization. When you're isolated from one another, it becomes very difficult to come together and not just think collectively, but to act or enact collectively. Um, so I think that's super crucial. And this leads me to my next question for you, you know, as we kind of wrap up a little bit. It's no surprise to anyone, I think, living right now, that our moment seems to be one of layered and constant crisis, right? So we have one horror compounding the other horrors that are going on simultaneously. We've got the, you know, not just a pandemic, it's now endemic COVID, right? It's just something we're going to live with. We also have surging income inequality. We have what looks like is about to be a new recession, worsening climate change. These are headlines that I have just read about in the past week, right? And it's all happening at once. So how do you, from your position as a microbiologist and also somebody very attuned to the rhythms and ideas of kind of queer theory and experience, think that we might survive, thrive, and build a better world out of one that is just crisis upon crisis upon yeah. crisis. I'm uh, notoriously not the most optimistic person in the world. That's it's okay. A, we have space a, for pessimism. It's a, it's a tough question for me. Um, and I think a lot about what my friend Chanda Prescott-Weinstein says about, about solidarity. Um, mm. Because no one person can tackle all these crises, right? <laughs> It's, it, it, would be, it would be a very ineffective way to organize a response. Um, but what I can do uh, in the response to COVID and now in the response to monkeypox as a molecular biologist with deep ties to the queer community and as an out-and-out -out gay slut who has a lot of trust in the community, I can do a lot of work in this moment uh, on the ground to, to make change. You know? And I can ask for support and solidarity from others in that work and then when it comes to abortion access or when it comes to climate activism or when it comes to trans rights, I can be in solidarity with people who are leading those movements. So on the political front, it's to me, it's all about acting with horizontal solidarity, supporting the right people who are doing the most amazing work uh, in, in any movement and being really strategic about harm reduction. You know, voting is the dumbest thing in the world. And also it just fucking matters. You know, it matters who is in, is in, in power in the government and neoliberalism sucks, but I'm sorry, fascism is worse, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think all of that is, is essential work. Um, and then the other side for me has been almost just so 
so small and so internal. And it is that I have, I've become very, very close with my, the, the pod that I, the, my COVID pod. And <laughs> those uh, bonds are very real. <laughs> It I, is like, like you, they are your lifeline in a way are, that they never were before. They are my life partners. You know, I really yeah. feel like these, this is, this is like my, this is like my family now. Uh, and, you know, I think acting in our intimate relationships, our most intimate relationships with grace and care and kindness, mutual care, you know, um, I love cooking for my people. And there's just nothing more joyful to me than after a horrible long day of, I'm trying to convince the federal government, like today, that maybe New York City should be able to do more than 20 monkeypox tests a day. Um, just yelled at someone for an hour that maybe that's not sufficient. And, um, you know, people we know are uh, getting denied a monkeypox test five times and mm -hmm. still not able to get one, even though they definitely have monkeypox. You know, so I can do my activist work on that front as best I can, as much as I can, as hard and as fast as I can. And when the day is over, I can go shopping and make, I don't know what I'm going to make, maybe fish tacos tonight. I made homemade tortillas for the first time uh, on this tour as a thank you for someone who is offering me their couch to sleep on. Um, <laughs> so I might try homemade tortillas once again and fish tacos and that there's something incredibly holy about that act of, that small act of service, the act of making food uh, and eating it with people who you love very dearly. I also, you know, this makes me think about um Back to those experiences from the early days of of the pandemic when we were all sorry, I should say the early days when we were all kind of uh, working remotely or you know locked in our houses. It helped to slow down life in a way that I think was dramatically impactful for a lot of people. You know, and and you're you're talking about cooking makes me think about that. You know, that there was for two weeks we you know my partner and I, uh, you know, we were in our home, we were Zooming with friends to stay connected to other people. Um, and then we would take one trip to the grocery store and then make, I mean, it's still certain things that I will never forget, like wiping down grocery bags oh God, with, wild. you know, handy white. And look, yeah. we didn't know. We had yep. no idea. I remember being terrified a month and a half, two months in when we got a takeout pizza, you know, that it was like, okay, <laughs> one of us is going to handle the plates and then the other one is going to put the pizza on it and then yeah. wash our hands and use hand sanitizer. You know, all those things. But this is one of the things that I feel the pandemic gave us, which was a way to return to the granular, to the everyday, to the, I guess in a certain sense, the non-virtual. Um, so I wonder if there, for you, are some positive things that came out or are coming out of the pandemic experience? I'm, we are forever altered and, and we are forever altered in ways that are both good and bad. Uh, I am forever altered in the comfort I have spending a weekend at home on my own. Uh, I, I had a mm -hmm. lot of FOMO in the pre-pandemic era. And if I was going into a weekend where I didn't have plans with friends to go out to this bar or that thing on Friday and Saturday night, it's just childhood trauma. I felt like I was a loser and I didn't have any friends and, you know, no one wanted to hang out with me. And um, that shit is gone. I'm like, oh, I can drink my little wine and make my little dinner and my boyfriend can go out dancing and I can have the home to myself. And, you know, I can read and write and watch mm -hmm. a movie. Um, I'm, I'm so much more in touch with what it, enjoying 
the safe space of home. And I think that is a little bit trauma too, because for a lot of COVID and even still with COVID, you know, breathing the air in your home when you're by yourself is the safe, it's, that's the safe, you are the safest there. Uh, and going out to bars now, uh, I actually am that faggot who still wears my KN95 in, in gay bars. I was, you know, I went to Fire Island. I was at the underwear party in my leather jockstrap and my KN95. I thought I looked chic, um, but, you know, <laughs> um, but that's a risk. And so because the home has become the safest space, I think that I am so much more appreciative of the small pleasures of caring for myself in, in the home. I think that's actually a really lovely place to end. We've been speaking with Joseph Osmondson, author of Virology. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.